Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. This week, the ultimate Beatles biographer tells us what happened the first time Paul played for John, and Anna Calvi turns the guitar into a wild animal. Plus music from MIA, Lady Gaga and Trampoline in Singles Club. Rebecca Nicholson joins us. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. Always a pleasure. Always you. my pleasure to be here. Hey. Um, so, uh, what has been going on in, in the world of popular music this week? What has been going on in your world? Yeah, why don't you share, Rebecca? Hey. <laughs> why, don't I, why don't I share my news? Um, I met Cher. Amazing. Which was the greatest 30 minutes on the dot, no more, of my life. <laughs> And time. And time, that's it. No, actually, I got a bit longer because I asked her um, a question about Salvador Dali and a vibrator. Wow. Which was a brilliant anecdote, which I can't tell you yet because it obviously hasn't been printed. This but is amazing. It was incredible. And, Salvador um, Dali and a vibrator? Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Little teaser there. But brilliant. <laughs> is this coming she, out in uh, I uh, believe Friday? it's coming out in Friday's mm-hmm. film music, mm-hmm. but um, very funny. She was just everything I wanted her to be. Sort of wow. honest, blunt. And you forget sometimes when you've interviewed 100 media trained pop stars that people can have an opinion and don't give a shit. And she yep. does not care. She well, you can say, tell that from her Twitter feed. Oh, yeah. Fairness. I mean, it's like her Twitter feed come to life. I asked her about that as well. We had a, we had a good chat about emojis, <laughs> which was weird. <laughs> Fantastic. Did you mention but, yeah. the Katy Perry video? No, we didn't um, talk about that. What's the Katy Perry video? Well, it's all in emoji. Yeah. What, what? Yeah, you know the, the symbols, the like little smiley face icons that you I know, get on I know iPhone. what an emoji is. Yeah, you? well, just... <laughs> right, you know computers. <laughs> I just haven't seen the Katy Perry video. Because frankly, I spent all last week reviewing the Katy Perry album. And if I never clap eyes on that woman or hear her voice again, right. it will be too soon. <laughs> okay. So I haven't seen this video. So I, vid- but I do know what an emoji right, is. Okay. Well, that is good, that is good. Getting you up to speed. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Katy Perry video is just lots of emojis in it. Is it? Yep. Describing what's going on. She hasn't seen it, but her favourite emoji is the ghost. um, Mm. Because she feels like that's her dancing. (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) I interviewed Cher about... um, It's when Believe came out, so that's... 1997, 98. And uh, adjacent to the interview, she did the greatest thing. I've ever seen a pop star do. Well, it, it was the conjunction of it being Cher and where she did it. Uh, well, it's Friday night, and she appeared unannounced and played live in heaven, the gay club. Yeah. <laughs> I've oh never God. seen an audience reaction like it in my entire life. There's <laughs> <laughs> a room full of queens, and Cher just appears out of nowhere and, and launching stuff. It was um, the most vociferous, vociferous audience reaction I have ever seen. I can it only was, imagine. Yeah. You could have powered the national grid <laughs> with the screaming. Um, what else has been going on in the world of uh, popular music? Other than, I mean, not that you know, it's right. brilliant. That's out. Sorry, I can't wait to read this. Nothing else. World, the awards season. It was the Mobos and the Q Awards. Did you go to the Mobos? No, I really wanted to go to the Mobos. Why, why did you not go? I, I don't know. You tell They're me. They're not invited. I was not sent. I was not sent. Well, couldn't you just go? I mean, you were like... Um, yeah, I know, but I thought, what's the point if I'm not writing about it? Wow. And also, last year... See how year, jaded, how jaded <laughs> Well, you know, last year I was on the JLS plane, so I was like, well, if I'm not going to be on a plane, I'm not going. JLS on a plane. Who won my business? Yeah, Laura Mavula scored, Laura Mavula scored big. Laura was like the Emily Sande of, of this year. So she... Let's, let's, not, let's not say that about I mean, that she, like Mavula. last year she was the big winner, and now this year Laura yeah. Mavula was the big winner. Um, and Wiley got best male act. Did Wiley turn up? What was Wiley's acceptance speech like? I was like, he, he was did it turn mental? Up. It was just like, at fucking last. You know? Is that what he said? <laughs> kind of. Really? Right. Okay. And the, yeah, that's what his Twitter feed was saying as well. Yeah, and then Robbie Williams got the Q Idol Awards. Because he's my idol, very yeah. good. The Q Awards were hilarious this year. I don't know how much legally we can say about this, but it, it was what? so kind of. <laughs> not, not, that makes it sound so much more sinister, Darling but it was so much. If you turned up, no. you may have an oh, award. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, <laughs> it was yeah, yeah. really funny. Um, no, absolutely. But, I mean, that, that is true of almost any awards. I think it's it true. I think it's sometimes yeah. it's, it's can 
be very obvious. There are other awards ceremonies, um, sometimes geared towards more classic rock, heritage rock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Where basically, if somebody's got a reissue out, you know what I mean? A big real got a box out. I kind of think of something to give them, you know? Because yeah. <laughs> they're on the campaign trail and you'll get a picture of them. Although, you know, maybe Q readers do prefer Ellie Goulding to David Bowie. There's always that possibility. Yeah. What did Ellie Goulding win <laughs> that David Bowie? Lifetime um, achievement. Solo artist of the year. <laughs> yeah, lifetime achievement. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was solo artist, got, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, she got best solo work and, and Bowie got six nominations and won nothing. Wow. Yeah. That'll teach you. I bet he's just That'll crying. <laughs> I bet he just sat at home in New York crying and just crying and eyes. crying about that, isn't it? I wish. Listening to, uh, yeah, listening to Ellie Goulding's album over and over again, weeping into his pillow. Like, I wish. <laughs> I wish. If only. If only I'd made that journey. Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. God, um, did you actually did you actually go? Did you go to the Key Awards? I didn't know. No. I just heard about them. I tell you what, I'm very excited about Courtney Love's memoir. Yeah, I yes. cannot wait. Yes, I'm trying to read entirely Morrissey's written in at block the capitals. <laughs> well, I prefer block capitals. I think to Morrissey's alliteration, which is just I'm. It's making it very slow going. You just get to. Yeah. You can read it in his singing and also voice, can't in you? the sense that. The Morrissey book is a bit like being cornered in a pub by someone who tells you <laughs> their life story at enormous length and explains how everything that went wrong was somebody else's fault. Yeah. Isn't it? I'm but, trying, yeah. I'm trying. But Courtney's will be far more entertaining, I would have thought. Yeah. Courtney's a... I've, I've met Courtney, though. She's a remar- I've met Courtney twice, actually. She's a remarkable woman. She was the second person I ever interviewed. Really? Yeah. What yeah. era was this? This was just before Pretty on the Inside. Oh, out. then we could... Right, after this, we're going to have to get really nerdy yeah. because there's a lot <laughs> I want to ask you. Um, but let us move on. To call Mark Lewison's biography of the Beatles a labour of love will be something of an understatement. The first volume of his minute-by-minute account, called Tune In, is 840 pages long and doesn't even reach a point in time where the Fab Four have had a number one yet. Casper Llewellyn Smith found out more, but first, here's the author reading a short passage in the book where Paul McCartney plays in front of John Lennon for the first time. As they lounged around, so the talk hit on music. Not one to hold himself back, Paul asked John for a go on his guitar, and noticing its strange banjo tuning, suggested he could retune it. The way he held the instrument upside down prompted a few sniggers, but after a minute or two of fiddling around, Paul suddenly stopped and burst into twenty-flight rock. Here, right away, was talent, already way out of John's league. And it wasn't just that Paul could get through the song from start to finish, singing with a strong, rocking voice and playing those chords with confidence. It was knowing all the words. Twenty Flight Rock was tricky, and it was another connoisseur's piece. It hadn't made the chart, so anyone who had learned it had gone out of his way, an expedition made only by the passionate, not something you can fake. machine when it comes to rocking she's a queen to dance on a saturday night all alone rocking hold it tight she lives on the 20th floor uptown the elevator's broken down but i walk one two flat three five four five six seven flight eight five more on 12 i'm starting to sack after this paul went into full exhibition mode showing off confident of his ability and aware of his audience He demonstrated one or two chords he thought the gathering might not have heard, and he played them some other numbers, Bebopalula was one, surely something by Elvis another. Then, showing real neck, he switched to piano and started belting out his little Richard routine, yelling alone into the quiet of a cavernous church hall. Paul couldn't have known it, but by slipping into Long Tall Sally he was sliding into John's main artery. That constantly thrilling, screaming black voice of little Richard Pennyman was now coming out of Ivan's little mate from Allerton. No matter how much John affected an air of coolness, his insides had to be leaping. Bullseye. I'm Allerton, Mary! 
Paul McCartney had impressed the guy on whom making an impression was suddenly so vital. He'd set out to do it and he'd achieved it, a tad eager but trying to hide it, his eyebrows raised, probably biting his lip, talking slightly too fast, switched on and good, really good. None of the quarrymen could do anything like this. And that beautifully read is uh, the story of Paul McCartney playing in front of the young John Lennon for the first time. Uh, and it's read by Mark Lewison, the author of the book from which it comes, The Beatles Tune In, the definitive biography of the Fabs. Mark, uh, welcome. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. I mean, it's fair to say you're the world's Beatles number one expert, isn't it? Uh, you've written several Probably. books about them before. Yeah, I've written a few books which um, have been quite scholarly in their approach, encyclopedias and the like, uh, reference books. But this is the first time I've stretched out and done a narrative. Mm-hmm. And tell us about your interest in the Fabs and about yourself. When did you first hear them? Well, I'm, as I said, I'm, I, was, I used to be, I, I got into this when I was a teenager, this kind of researching the Beatles business. But in fact, I got into it when I was about five Um, which happened to be the year that they broke through in Britain. I'm now 55, so it's 50 years ago, 1963. And I just heard them on the radio. And like everybody else, or so many other people across the world, um, I just thought, oh, what's that? It sounded so different. It really was different from anything we'd ever heard before. I wasn't that au fait with pop music. I, I was only five years old. But I knew immediately that it was fresh, bright, happy, interesting, I wouldn't quite say that I knew it was edgy, but it was. I mean, it had attitude in it. It had, it had the personality of the singers in it, and you could hear that. And although I couldn't intellectualise it at the age of five, I definitely knew that there was something very special going on there. And at some point, then it becomes what a hobby that you're a fan, and you start reading about them, and you're uh, sort of obsessed by the group. But at what point does it stop being a fan, and it becomes a profession at the same time? Um, well, that kind of—I didn't intend for that to happen. But um, I always loved going to libraries, and I always loved researching, and I, I liked information. I liked finding things out, and I had a good retentive memory for things that I was interested in. So. Um, There were a few books by the 1970s, there were maybe half a dozen books on the Beatles, enough even then for people to say, what more could we possibly learn about the Beatles? Another book. And of course, now there are hundreds. But I I got into it then and I started to do original research in about 1979 um, at the British Library in Collindale, which is about to close. Uh, You had to be 21 to get in and it was pretty much on my 21st birthday that I went and started researching the Beatles. What would you say is the first sort of major Beatles book? Is it Shout by Philip Norman? That seems to be the one that's always held up as, uh, you know, for a generation of people as the definitive biography. Um, The first really good Beatles book came out in 1964 by an American writer called Michael Brown, uh, spelled B-R-A-U-N, called Love Me Do. And it actually quoted them swearing. And at that time, it was quite a shocking thing. Pop stars did not swear. You wouldn't, you know, that was the, the idea anyway. Then the first really big one was Hunter Davis's original biography the authorized biography from 1968 and of course there have been so many others since but I just felt that it needed to be done better and differently because merely by cramming everything into one book you have to miss out a great deal of very important stuff because the Beatles story is very deep and very broad and once you start looking at the impact of the Beatles on how they changed culture and how they really shook youth culture awake and how basically every band that has come after 1963 owes their debt to the Beatles, whether they like it or not, then I thought this really needs to be stretched out a bit and I'm I'm writing it in three volumes and each one is pretty hefty. Right. (laughs) And and along the way, did you discover that there are a series of myths that have accreted over the years about the band and, you know, falsehoods that have allowed to grow up around them oh yeah inevitably so um i mean everyone thinks they know about the beatles and and the the generalizations are really quite wild and and the myths are are some of them you know quite some of them they have occurred naturally just by building uh on themselves but other things have actually been made up on purpose by people who wish to exaggerate their importance to the story or or that kind of thing i call this book anti-myth 
I'm not actually setting out to dismantle anything. I'm just saying, let's press the refresh button and look at this all over again and, and from the beginning and see what it tells us. And you say that Hunter Davis's book was the first and the only Beatles book to be authorised by mm. them. Uh, you've worked with the Beatles, or at least with the organisation over the years. So perhaps tell us a bit about that, but also why this book is not authorised, given that it was always likely to be the definitive account. Yeah, well, when my first book came out, which was a guide to all the Beatles' live appearances, um, when that came out, Paul McCartney said, this is the best book on the Beatles I've ever read, and would you come and work for me? So I, as a freelancer, I, I worked for his, him and his organisation for about, about 15 years, uh, and eventually did a lot of work for EMI and for the Beatles company, Apple, and so on. But they don't authorise things unless they own them, unless they control them. You know, they were... They weren't the first artists to control their entire output because obviously in their very early days they signed a lot of it off, like EMI owned their recordings and the late Michael Jackson half owns their publishing. Um, but all the same, whatever they can control in the modern way, they, they do like people do. So this book has to be... They wouldn't authorise it and actually I didn't really want them to. They've done their own anthology, uh, which I helped them... I helped edit... Uh, and this is an independent book, and it must be seen to be independent. There's a fantastic little footnote in uh, the chapter from which you read earlier, which is an account of the first time that Paul and John met at the uh, Walton Village Fate, yes. which is in July 1956. 57. 57, mm. sorry. Mm. It's all right. Um, and this is a sort of well-told story it's not an unfamiliar story to people mm. but just in a footnote you raise this tantalizing possibility that in fact they may have met previously and there's a line where you say it's a story that Paul McCartney won't say officially but he's been known to sort of talk to confidence about it mm. uh, tell us about that and where that paragraph comes from sometimes in Liverpool uh, if if the moment is right and Paul McCartney is in Liverpool he will and he's picking somebody up say from a station or whatever he will say do you want a tour of Liverpool and of course, who's going to say no? Uh, and he will drive them around Liverpool, pointing out places from his own personal history, which, of course, is the Beatles history, but also his own, where he lived, where he went to school. And um, he points to a news agency where he had a paper round and says, actually, although this isn't in any of the books, the first time I really saw John Lennon was here. And I may have had a word or two as well, but he's never said it publicly. He doesn't want to say it publicly. And when I wrote to him, because although although they didn't help me for this book, I, I could write and ask questions. I, you know, I had email correspondence. And I actually said to him, that story that you don't like saying publicly, you know, I'd quite like to say it. And he didn't want to, to get involved. He prefers to keep it quiet. Right, but this is the point where you say it's not an authorised book, so you tell the story, which is the sort of mythic story, but at the same time there's room, the scope to bring in the uh, yeah. alternative universe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's one of the few times in the book when I'm not actually certain of something, because you know it, it, it remains unproven, but I put it in because it's interesting, and I actually say it's unproven, I'm not nailing it down, I'm just saying there is this other alternative scenario. How would you define Beatlemania? I couldn't define it, you know, I've other people to try it, I'm, I'm not going to try it, leave it to the psychologist and let them get it wrong i wanted to ask you you write with such energy in the book itself uh, about for example the hamburg years when they go there and they're staying in the kind of most squalid conditions imaginable and finding themselves uh, as a band for the first time really playing live in this incredibly concentrated way yeah and the sort of energy leaps off the page for that i just wonder which is your your favorite period of the beatles and did you find yourself in writing the book sort of warming to different aspects of them I like all of it. I actually say in the introduction to this book that this is probably because these are the unknown years. These are the pre-fame years. These are actually probably about the most interesting period of them all. And then I say in brackets, this could also be said for the others. <laughs> because the thing about the Beatles is they moved on so rapidly that each of their periods was, was interesting and, and exciting. But as for what I found interesting uh, in this book, I... The Hamburg period is obviously a very strong one because it's so colourful. They pretty much live their lives on one or two streets. And they're pretty filthy streets. And um, it's the real rock and roll existence. It's scummy. And they're playing for hours to, you know, pretty hard people, gun-carrying gangsters even, literally. And, um, you know, these gangsters get up on stage and sing with them. And you have to, you have to go along with that, otherwise you'll end up in the gutter. So they, they really learned, they found out who they were 
then and I really did enjoy writing that period but so I also enjoyed the Liverpool stuff Liverpool had a music scene unlike anywhere else in the world the only place in the world that had a rock band scene I mean they're everywhere now but there was a time when there was one and it was in the northwest of England and and it even had its own newspaper Mersey Beat and of all the bands that played there, the Beatles were the biggest by, by a long chalk. They were the only truly original band among, them, among the crowd. And um, everybody was copying them. And what happened to the Beatles there in Liverpool with the following that they gathered and the way that all the bands were copying what the Beatles were doing was simply a microcosm of what would happen when they had a world platform. And does it still seem astonishing to you that it ever happened at all? I mean, you talk about the city as a kind of cradle for it, and it was a particular point in British history. But what are the odds on getting that those four guys who came across each other, and they happened to have those talents, and they happened to fit together in that way, and they happened, the stars aligned? Yeah, the stars did align. And also, when you read the book, you'll, you'll see how many coincidences and, and moments of fortune occurred that... that without which it probably wouldn't have happened. And and I'm not a believer in fate or or any kind of higher power, but you just can't help but stand back and think something was going on here for all these, everything to occur in the way that it did. Um, I mean, they were about to break up before Brian Epstein took on their management. And what were the chances of a guy like that becoming their manager? And the way they got George Martin as their producer, which is a new story I tell in this book, is, uh, is, again, ridiculously unlikely. So everything was aligned. Everything was, was almost meant to be. You have written about other people in the course of your career. You've written about Benny Hill, for example. Mm. But, and I was going to ask, are the stones unturned? I mean, what would you most dearly like to know? Is there some missing piece of music or is there some missing piece of the archive that would shed new light on something? Yeah, my number one um, interest, is when people say, what do you collect? Because... Beatle people tend to collect some, they might collect records or memorabilia or whatever. And I have a fair collection of all of that stuff. But more than anything else, I collect information. And information is best found in documents. So I love documents. And I'm always trying to find something that, you know, a letter, a contract, a photograph, whatever it might be that, that tells me something. Um, and there's plenty out there still to be found. And I'm, I'm optimistic. I actually have an appeal in this book for people to get in touch if they think they've got something that I might not have seen. And of course, that's hard to, to know. But I'm willing to be bombarded with stuff that I have seen on the basis that, that there just might be something I haven't. Well, it's a, it's a magnificent achievement, I think. If, if, uh, if you were going to say to one five-year-old child, here's are my books and I want you to read them all. But mm-hmm. first of all, I'm going to give you one piece of Beatles music. Uh, to get you hooked on it, what would you give them? Five-year-old child. Well, for me, I was five, and I heard "She Loves You," and that was dynamite. Um, I mean, "She Loves You." People somehow look down on it, but I mean, God, nothing like that had ever been recorded before—not in Britain, not in America, not anywhere. Um, I think I'd play "I'm the Walrus" <laughs> because I got into that when I was nine, and I, it just blew me away. I'd never heard anything like it. Nothing like that had been made before. was Casper Llewellyn Smith talking to Mark Lewis and all those years volume one tune in is out now Ping! it's time for singles club Rebecca let's hear your choice first When I enter the building That's M-I-A with Y-A-L-A or Yala Let's say Yala Yala Yala. Uh, Rebecca, your choice It's my choice Uh, But you brought this in, tell us about This is from the much delayed much delayed new album. Well, they all part of a conspiracy, I noticed. Probably. Well, that's what you said in the interview in the Guardian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and. Well, this sounds 
more like what I like about MIA is that the more successful she gets and the more presumably money she has to plow into things. Mm. I mean, she's got this obvious delay, which is quite a big artist thing to do. You kind of don't you delay it and you delay it, don't yeah, you, until yeah, you get yeah. it right. But it still sounds really cheap, and I mean that as a compliment. No, no, I no, like that this sounds absolutely. cheap. Yeah. It sounds kind of really home done, which is when she has always been best. So I like it. It's funny as far as I can tell. It's an anti anti yolo song. Ah. Which is a what, good thing. Good thing to have. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think we, we all, we've all had enough of YOLO, haven't we? We've all yeah. had enough of YOLO. YOLO is not the motto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not Paper Planes, is it? But it no. sounds like it's a bit sharper than anything that was on the last album. So yeah, the last album was just racket. It was huh? a bit of a mess, wasn't yeah. it? Also, I really like the fact that she wrote a song called Sexodus for Madonna, and Madonna didn't want it, so she took it back. On Sexodus. The gr- Sexodus on the ground. Almost as good as Sexhibition by Sex- uh, Janet Jackson. But... Yes, God, that terrible Janet Jackson album that had all those songs. Yes, I not a terrible that. album. I think it's unloved and should be reclaimed. As oh right, a, okay, a decent, interesting. It's the one that everyone says Janet Jackson. Oh, she was off her game and mm. she wasn't really interested. But it's got some good songs. I played Sex Exhibition in a DJ set not that long ago. Wow! And as they say, it went off. Did it? Yeah, mm-hmm. amazing. I like it. I always find with MIA, you know, and I don't think she necessarily wants us to do this as listeners. That I, I, I find it best to divorce the person that one comes across in the interviews from the actual music. Because every time I read one of her interviews, I think, oh, you sound unbearable. Um, she is, but, but wouldn't you rather that she exists? Than, oh, for sure. I mean, I don't, yes, mean, yes, I don't yes. mean to be rude about poor old Ellie Goulding, because she is a bit of a byword for, for boring artists, but I'd much rather someone like MIA who was no, just talking nonsense agree. all the time. I, no, I completely agree, but it's kind of, there's something, it was just a bit... You know, I don't. Yes, I suppose. Yes, no. You're right. You're right. It's good. Pop stars should say ridiculous things. You know, yeah. Um, and yeah, behaving. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. It just for some reason gets on my nerves. Right. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. Um, Kira. Okay. Yes. I I have a conflicted relationship with MIA because when she uh, came out, I was really excited about about her, and I thought, you know, she's great. She has this charisma. She's a you know cool brown girl, and you know. Uh, popular culture and it's really great but her pop songs were kind of not very not at odds with uh, her personality and I think that in real life she has a lot more charisma and eccentricity than she does on her records because this I mean I mean I feel like this was okay but it sounds quite boring and it's like lyrically quite boring the tempo is quite boring it's very repetitive it's the same kind of vibe as Bad Girls which has really amazing video really great aesthetic but it was really repetitive and when you hear it in a club unless it has a good remix it's always like you know, after like two minutes, you're like, oh God, it's the same thing over and mm. over. There is there is like a bit of banality in her stuff. Does it annoy you that she gets uh, more press and publicity? Because other artists making this kind of music whose records perhaps go off in the club yes. um, wouldn't be on the front cover of The Guardian Weekend because they wouldn't be going, Google's involved in a conspiracy with such and such. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you think that, that do, you, do you think it's a <clears> sense of, not style over substance, but just making your gob go over substance? I mean, I think she, I don't know. I think she obviously has in, like some kind of interesting things to say and people, I don't know, like her visibility is a good thing because what because the thing, the point you're making about pop needing those kind of yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So I think that that is a good thing, but I and also the fact that the pop that she makes, well, the music that she makes, isn't that palatable. And when I hear it, I'm always like, it's getting less palatable. Yeah, this is like as like MIA as pop music. I always think, like have found a bit problematic, I guess, because. Whenever I've heard it in that kind of environment, I'm like, this is not, this is like, this is not Except going off. Like, this is not Except really that fun. Planes, obviously. Yeah. Sun shower. That's quite poppy, isn't uh, it? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Anyway, but um, yeah. And the, in this song in particular, it has those that kind of bro step drop, and it just it just sounds like quite dated and. But and then maybe that's because it's, it's been held back for so long. This album, this was supposed to be completed yeah. ages ago. Yeah, it? but it, but it, but even more than that, it sounds quite contrived. It sounds like she's almost trying to use all those elements that have been working in the clubs. And I think that she's best when she's natural. At the mm. end, when she kind of relaxes a little bit, you can hear a real shift in the tone of her voice. I feel like it sounds more exciting. But then there is a reincarnation reference at the end, which also I love. So. And at one point, she says, "I'm Julianne Moore." Which I quite like. <laughs> or just randomly. Yeah. I'm Julianne Moore. Amazing. There you go. <laughs> I'm Joanna Lumley. Um, well, that's uh, Yalla by MIA, uh, around and about on the internet. Of course, let us move on to Kieran's choice. Life. I wouldn't trade it in cause it's our life 
drink in your cup. I could be the green in your blunt. Yo, push a man. Yeah, I got what you want. You want to escape all of the crazy shit. That's Do What You Want uh, by R. Kelly and Lady Gaga. Um, which way round is that? Is this a Lady Gaga track featuring R. Kelly? Rather yeah, than R. it's Kelly on track Art featuring, Pop. It's on, it's on what? It's on Art Pop. Art Pop. Uh, yes, a, an intriguing choice. <laughs> oh, God, it's really bad. Isn't it? It's not that it's... No, no, it's not really bad. It's not really bad. Um, I feel my feeling. Well, I was just hearing it now. I was like, "Oh, it's quite bad." Stinks. Um, My (laughs) feeling about it is, what you want Mm. if you're Lady Gaga and you get R. Kelly uh, doing a guest spot on your track is this is kind of very straightforward. You know, I'm going to be the the green and your blunt sort of. You know, straightforward love myself. I Mm. want mental R. Kelly. I want the R. Kelly that made um, what's that track? Real Talk. Have you heard that? (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And said, fuck you, fuck me, bitch, I wish you would burn my motherfucking clothes. <laughs> bitch, I wish you would burn my motherfucking clothes. Um, Imagine that. if he was trapped in Lady Gaga's closet. That would just... Amazing. But that's the sort of, you know, yeah. that you want the R. Kelly of uh, is it Having a Baby, which is the song where at the end the backing singers start going, push, push, <laughs> oh God, a little Robert Jr. An amazing record. You want the one Sex Weed. Where he describes a lady's vagina as her sticky icky. That's um, right. But maybe that's icky. not what Lady Gaga wants because, I, and I can't claim this theory as my own. It's Peter Robinson of the famous Pop Justice's theory, mm, right? But he said Lady Gaga is, is so focused on the small part of the relatively small part of her audience that's the little monsters and right. like all of the weird stuff. Yeah. That she's forgotten that she did straightforward pop songs yeah. to start with, and yeah. that's what made her popular in the first place. And so this sounds a little bit to me like she's trying to so redress that, claw that yeah. back because the rest of art pop is. Is it stuff that I've heard? Well, only I watched the iTunes performance oh, I was there. that she did. That was ropey. Mm. It was really. It was really tough. ropey. There was a couple of minutes on it where it was like, okay, this is really strange and odd, and I don't expect, and that's great. Yeah. And there was other bits where I was just, you know, I was a bit lost. Yeah. Um, and even the you know I said this at the time I think I said it on the podcast even the little monsters you know were, were seemed a bit subdued yeah yeah um, so maybe this is it yeah but when when this was circulating on the internet a lot of uh, well some of the feedback was that it was really strange that you know there was this pairing because actually when you listen to it the voices don't go that well together but to me it sounded like it was you know that made perfect sense because they're both completely earnest about what they do and they have no sense of humour. I think I don't, you know. That's, so, that's a very peculiar interpretation of R. Kelly. No, he doesn't. No, no he's sort of Lady Gaga. I think he's really. I think, I think. I think. I think. No, I, I, I she's disagree so, with both she's those so earnest about like you know her like conceptual artistic take. I on bet R. Music. Kelly is just sat at home pissing himself. No <laughs> way. On, like on the hook when he's singing. I don't give a fuck. You could just hear him, like, he doesn't. closing your eyes, like, closing his eyes and, like, being really, I don't know. I, I think I, he buys I, into I, it. I find it I very, very difficult it. to believe that anybody has a lack of self-awareness to the degree you would need to have to make the records that R. Kelly really? has made without know. thinking there's something a bit funny about this. He yeah. obviously thinks Trapped in the Closet's funny. There's that one where it's, uh, where he's sort of making g- chimpanzee noises. Ooh, ooh, ah, 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 that's my body calling your name. It's, it's like, um, yeah, but it is, I don't know, that doesn't, really, that doesn't come across, I don't think. I don't know, I, I always have had that reading. Of I don't, I I don't like, know. And I also think yeah. Lady Gaga obviously clearly has a sense of humor about what she does. Oh, God, she's irritating, though, and... And the reason I like, I find her really irritating, I don't like her at all, for that exact reason, that I just think that she's just not very good at having a sense of humour about stuff. And then when she did that whole meat dress stuff, and then she, you know, people were being quite funny about it, and she was just so overly earnest about why that was. I just Interesting. Interesting, you know, interesting and I think, view. I think that her music is Did you don't like this record? Um, no. That you brought, no. in. You brought well, in. I kind of like it. You wasted I, everybody's time. No, when I when I first heard it, I was like, "Oh, this is bad." And then I heard it um, like in a club scenario, and I was like, "Actually, this is great. This is, <laughs> this is a good song." Well, if you're pissed, and I was dancing to it, I wasn't even pissed. I was just like high on uh, Lady Gaga, R. Kelly vibes. But then I heard it again. Is on... that some sort of brand of ecstasy? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or methadrone, um, and then. <laughs> And then uh, I heard it in my room again and was like, oh, actually, oh, it's kind of bad. So I don't know. I, You're sort of vacillating. Yes. Mm. I mean, it's just fairly straight, isn't it? Yeah, it's just there, isn't it? This is, the, this is, you know, my problem with Lady Gaga all down the line with the exception of about three songs. I applaud everything that Lady Gaga stands for. I applaud a pop star that sets out to, you know, to, to, to sort of appeal to the weird kids. You know, not many pop stars do that these days. We live in the X Factor world where it's good to be normal and da da da. Um, I, I think, you know, 
sort of generally obviously she delivers an incredibly empowering message and all that kind of thing um she looks amazing um and all that stuff and then i put the records on and i'm like yeah apart from bad romance poker face i like the records and actually applause from this art pop round of stuff has really grown yes it it is a grower yeah i'll give you that yeah it's a grower not a shower you hate it yeah i don't like that either who do you think that r kelly who do you think his fans are? Who do you think he appeals to? Well, I saw him playing with Phoenix at Coachella earlier this year, which was... I think he's got two two different fan bases, haven't yeah. I think he's got people that like... You know, people that just like slow jams. I bet there's a lot of ladies of a certain age when you go to his shows that were kind of big on that kind of 90s. Yeah, but only in a bump and grind. Everything like post bump and grind era. I don't know if he's still a legitimate R and B star. No, I don't. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is he? I, don't, I have no idea. No, I, don't, I, don't I mean, think so. That's I, why maybe everybody just likes him. Maybe it's just a lot of kind of people like Phoenix, sort of French mm. people going, oh, 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 he's very funny." <laughs> 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 exactly. His, you know, internet joke. He's yeah, like, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I, but that I think it's all a huge. I don't know. I don't know what I think about R Kelly. There's a lot to deal with. Isn't there just? So do we like this record? Do any of us like this record? I think we've enjoyed talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sound of punches being pulled, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Lady Gaga uh, and R. Kelly, do what you want. Let's move on to my choice. As much as I love it, I hate all the bullshit. Yeah, she's married, but not in a relationship. And her brother's mustache. That's my choice for Singles Club uh, this week. Uh, uh, My Bourgeoisie Girl, the appallingly named My Bourgeoisie Girl by Trampoline. Um, It has not been... I don't think anybody, I don't think even, even, I don't think anybody would claim it's been a vintage year for guitar music. And everything that's come out seems sort of a bit kind of apologetic and a bit sort of, you know, it's a list do. And what I like about this record, which has kind of surprised me that I like it as much as I do, is that it's just this sort of big, stupid, swaggering kind of fuck off <laughs> sort of record <laughs> that you sort of think, God, that's quite, quite exciting. It's got this kind of sort of attitude yeah. to it. Um, and the lyrics kind of, I can't work out whether the lyrics are brilliant or absolutely awful. <laughs> um, but sometimes I'm like, oh, that's pretty funny. And oh, God, that's terrible. Uh, so I just sort of thought, God, it's got a real swagger. It's got a real attitude to it. It reminded me a bit of uh, a band called Kinky Machine that no one will, that were kind of, they turned into Rialto. Um, the Britpop band, they're kind of that pre, sort of immediate pre Britpop era. They used to play with suede and stuff like that. Um, I just sort of thought, yeah, this is kind of spunky. It's something you can kind of get behind in a way that I don't know who's being sort of touted as a big indie band this year, Palmer Violets or something, you know, Peace. Peace. Yeah. Um, well, you just sort of think, mm. whereas this is, I just sort of thought this had a bit of bit of oomph, and I'm sort of quite pleased to choose a guitar track for a change because I've picked a lot of things that aren't, you know, picked a lot of dance music and a lot of electronica and stuff like that. It uh, the look of- on the or your two's faces tells me <laughs> that uh, you do not share my enthusiasm for this piece of well, music. No, it reminds me of two periods. It reminds me of that sort of brief kind of around Britpop time when I had lots of seven inches myself that sounded a bit like this. Uh-huh. And then it also reminds me of when I, when I very first started doing music journalism and I was at The Face and I kept going to see bands that sounded like this. And I think it was just as the White Stripes were kind of okay. making... So who you mean? Like real, that, the Datsuns and stuff? That sort of thing, yeah. And there was even bands that just never made it beyond those you know gigs at the Barfly and all that kind mm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me of that too. It made, it made us all laugh and it was... It was very loud. And Jarvis Cocker's been doing lyrics like that for years, yes, hasn't he? So I, hadn't, if it was, I, th- I hadn't thought about yeah. that, actually. Yeah, you're incest right. It's lyrics. Got a, it's got a little hint of... Uh, of uh, not incest. It's no, not incest. It's not incest. It's not incest. What are you talking about? Unless he's talking to his own brother. He said it's her oh, right, brother. Ignore that. Oh, Disclaimer, not incest. <laughs> I've just worked <laughs> out in my mind that it's not incestuous. Oh, I can feel, I can feel a, a Twitter storm brew. Um, um, yeah, no, I, I liked it for that reason. I liked the, like, the dirtiness and the rawness of it yeah. and how it was completely unrestrained and kind of it's it's got that quality that you that you listen to it and you feel like they are having a really easy time. It's mm. not, you know, they're not doing like very precious vocal runs. They're not, it doesn't feel so considered. Seems like they're just kind of cool and like doing this draw. 
anyway, especially when you listen to, I'll go. Well, you can sort of imagine them looking like Jet, can't you? There would yes, that's the that's the downside. Yeah. You sort of think, is it a bit like that? Is it a bit jet? The other tracks on the like? uh, it's got hairy Australians. Yeah, on adverts. Oh, yeah. On adverts. Okay. The, there's four tracks on this EP that's coming out uh, in November. And actually, I thought there was there's another track on the EP called um, something like it's called something like Cardiff to Crouch End or something like that. And this is kind of a lilting acoustic-y sort of thing that made made it seem like there was a bit more kind of substance lyrically there. It wasn't just sort of clever one-liners and da 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 and all that sort of thing. So I suspect they're probably not that much uh, like Jet. I hope they're not that much like Jet. But I just sort of thought actually this is rocks. I just mm, think it's yeah, a, I was surprised. They're Welsh, right? They're, well, the lead singer is definitely Welsh. Oh, okay, right. Um, I don't know. If they're all Welsh. It's good. No, Does that it's matter? Good. No, because I was just because when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, they're Welsh," and I was like, "Oh, it doesn't sound Welsh," you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that good. No, but I like this. I need this okay. because I, you know, I've this year I've listened to so much R and B because there've been so many great R and B releases, mm-hmm. and they talk about sex, but it's in so, you know, there's no "I fucked your sister." It's so gentle, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, they're saying the same thing, but in a far more gentler way. And sometimes that's just what you need. You this know, is what you need. Sketch the fucking point. <laughs> 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 Brilliant. Uh, My Bourgeoisie Girl by that Trampoline. That like a shout out on the <laughs> And that's just what I needed for anyone listening. <laughs> Sorry, Alexis. That's amazing. <laughs> We're just oh, getting here until it... Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'll um, be in King's Place till four. Come on up. My Bourgeoisie Girl by Trampoline is uh, is out in November. Uh, but he's obviously around and about on the internet now. And that's Singles Club. After a lauded debut album and being named Best British Breakthrough at the Brits, singer-songwriter Anna Calvey could have been forgiven for doing more of the same. But she decided to get out of her comfort zone for her second album. She tells Charlotte Richardson Andrews about getting heavier, more orchestral, and turning the guitar into a wild animal. said you were determined not to repeat yourself on this album how did you push away from what you'd done on your debut I think it was just about um, I guess expanding the breadth of color and emotion and just trying to do more just to go out of my comfort zone I was working more with the idea of pushing the, the moments of beauty and pushing the moments of ugliness that there's more kind of extremes Um, on the record and doing things that I wouldn't have done in the first record like getting heavier and then getting more orchestral and getting slightly more electronic I think the first time round I was very much just wanted it to be like a a band playing whereas this one has a bit more variety Yeah, because we talked before around the first album about the way that you use guitar and how you were trying to sort of use that instrument and kind of coax orchestral sounds out of guitars but on this album you've sort of gone straight to the source and used more traditional classical instruments what was the impulse behind that i guess just wanting to further my um my interest in in orchestral arrangements and for me this time the guitar i wanted it more to be like um, this kind of wild animal that just comes in really suddenly in a song and there's a kind of visceral energy to it and then it disappears and that it's not so much about just strumming the chords, providing the harmony of the song, it's more this kind of character that comes in at the kind of the emotional apex of the song. You also used keyboards on this album. Uh, you worked with John Baggett, mm. who's worked with Porter's Head and Massive Attack. How did you utilise keyboards on this album? Because I didn't want the guitar to just be this, this kind of strummy instrument in the background, I had to find another way of, I guess, like, holding down the chords so I was looking at a lot of Tom Waits records like Rain Dogs where he uses like tuned percussion like marimba and vibraphone to create chords and also um, the idea of using organ and, and, and synths as a way of like suggesting the chord changes which then freed up the guitar to just come in at the kind of climatic moments and so that's where the keyboard came in it was uh, using it kind of to create 
the chords. It was really great to work with John. He was really amazing in the studio. Your latest single, Sing To Me, is partly about your hero, Maria Callas, um, and the healing power of being saved by someone else's voice. Would you say that healing is a theme on one breath? I think, in a way, it is. I mean, the idea of building yourself up and then being de deconstructed and having to build yourself up again is a theme musically that happens and also thematically. The idea of being on the edge of something where your life's about to change and how you deal with that instability and finding a way to actually really love the feeling of being out of control because some of the best moments are actually, you know, when you're in love, you feel completely powerless and out of control. And making the record and, and going through that was quite a healing, healing thing and for me the record ends in a kind of hopeful that you know that you're ready to start your life again and and go out into a world which may be unstable but that you know you have to kind of make the most of that. You said this album is less about passion and romance and more about memory. Memory does come up quite a few times on this record. Um, I guess because in my personal life it was a transitionary period and also I, a member of my family passed away and so I was just drawn to the idea that no matter what you do you can't hold on to memories and that's really sad but also very healing because you know that's what enables us to move on and and the relentlessness of the world which can feel very cold-hearted sometimes when you're missing someone or you know someone's passed away and the, but the world doesn't care and the world is going to go on and on and the grass is going to grow and that actually can be a very healing thing and so that theme just seemed to kind of come up a lot throughout different songs unconsciously. You've talked about it being less passionate but I think there are still songs on there that are incredibly passionate. Love of My Life for example. Yeah I mean I have to say I don't feel the record's less passionate but I just feel there's moments where it's more vulnerable and it's dealing with that as well as like really wanting someone you know. Um, but having said that Love of My Life is kind of about I suppose just the energy of lust and that the animalistic side of it isn't particularly pretty and I think what's good about doing something creative is you can go into your psyche and it doesn't matter if it's a bit ugly it's almost the ugly parts that are the most interesting um, it's not about being nice and so I wanted the music to represent that feeling of just really wanting someone and, 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 and there's the, the primeval feeling that that kind of brings up I've written about how women making guitar music tend to be compared to other women rather than men as well as women. Um, and you've told me um, that it drives you mad when journalists try to force you to talk about being a woman instead of just being able to talk about your music as men are allowed to do. Is that something that still happens? Yeah, it does. I mean, I get some ridiculous questions like, what does it feel like to be a woman playing a phallic instrument like a guitar? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's like really crazy. I mean, not everyone asks me that, but you know, I have had that. Or someone saying, you know, it's interesting that, you know, women are kind of feel guilty about leaving their families and their children, and that's what they write about. You know, how, you know, and that's what makes women's music interesting. Wow. Uh, yeah, like, you know, so it's like, it's just kind of depressing, you know? Like, it just sort of feels like surely. Surely we're beyond this point where it's like, oh, a woman that 
does something interesting, you know? I mean, I think it's important to address the fact that, that both the music industry and the press, um, the people who are writing about music and choosing what music gets written about um, are still very male-dominated. Um, and that a lot of women I've interviewed have wanted to talk about their experiences navigating sexism in the industry. And I think uh, people like Lauren Maybury from Churches, um, she's a, you know, a recent example of a woman speaking out about sexism in the music industry. But I also know that there are a lot of female musicians who don't feel like victims um, and hate the idea of being portrayed as such. Would you say you fall into that latter camp? When I started in the first album and I got asked a lot, like, are you a feminist? You know, like, what do you think about being a woman? And it was really shocking to me. Like, I'd never thought about being a woman. Like, you know, you just are what you are. And I'd never thought about being a feminist either. It just hadn't really occurred to me like obviously I believe in equal rights but it's not like it's something that I had considered and I felt quite annoyed that people were asking me if I was a feminist and then it was quite interesting as the year went on just becoming more aware of it and reading more about it and and gradually kind of understanding what it means to say that you're a feminist and that the the kind of the negative aspects to it are actually just Ultimately, the patriarchy's way of shutting women up because I don't believe in any way that being a feminist is about being inclusive. I mean, exclusive, it's about being inclusive. It's about saying, like, everyone should have the same rights and, and it's about equality and there's nothing negative towards men about that because actually I think it doesn't suit men either, this imbalance, you know, I think society is better when everyone's happy, ultimately, you know. That was Charlotte Richardson-Andrews talking to Anna Calvey. Her album One Breath is out now. That is it for this week. Our thanks as ever to Rebecca. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Kieran, we'll be back next week, won't we? We will. Rather, is it Brit special next week? No, not Brit. Mercury's. Mercury's. Yes, the Mercury's. Mercury's. Are you going? Uh, no. Oh, come. Okay. Come. It'll be fun. Visit guardian.co.uk forward slash music weekly for more info on the show and, of course, links to singles, club tracks. See you next week. Bye bye. Bye. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.